We'll begin at the 13th verse of the 25th chapter and read through to the 8th verse of the 26th chapter. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss of how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this, this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as, my, as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I've brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Thus for the reading of God's word. Now may God bless the preaching of his word. And let's pray together as we come to God's word today. Our God and our Father, again... We ask for your help as we come to your word because we don't just want to be hearers of it and understanders of it, Father. We want to be doers of it. We want for you to illuminate to us not just the bare meaning of these narratives, Father, but great truth about you, great truth about your promises, great truth about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ alone. And we want for you to continue to transform our lives by this living truth. And so, Father, as we come, that is our prayer, and we ask that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight as we approach your holy word today. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I was talking recently to a good friend, a dear brother in the Lord about the reality, about the idea of hope, and about how... The more and more that we live our lives in this world, the more obvious it becomes to all of us that nothing in this world is worthy in any way, shape, or form of anchoring our 
hope too, because everything in this world is all so fragile and all so fleeting and cannot sustain the hope that God has designed us to have. That's what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is all about, isn't it? In fact, it's what the whole Word of God is all about. All human beings made in the image of the eternal God have this abiding, driving sense of hope that nothing in this created order, nothing in this sin-cursed world can actually satisfy. God has put eternity into man's heart. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says that means that he has instilled into our souls by virtue of us being made in his image, he has instilled into our souls, into the very fabric of our humanness, a sense of longing for things that have eternal, everlasting worth and value and meaning. But in our sin, and we talked about this last week, in our sin we've all alienated ourselves from God. And and we've all suppressed His truth in our unrighteousness and exchanged it for lies and fallen short of His infinite eternal glory, and and chosen to worship the creation instead of the Creator. We're we're trying to satisfy this God-given longing for eternity through things that are not eternal. And in that darkened foolishness of our sinful hearts, we live our lives in the way that Paul describes in Ephesians Chapter 2 and verse 12 where he says that we are separated from Christ by, by nature in our sin. Alienated. Strangers to the covenants of God's promise. Having no hope. And without God in this world. That's, that's what sinful people are. And all of us were before Christ redeemed us. We were wandering around in this world in spiritual blindness, groping and grasping for something that will satisfy this God-given longing for eternal worth and value and significance and, and hope. But apart from Him, no one's ever going to find it. And so apart from Him, life will always ultimately consist of frustration and futility and this abiding sense of meaninglessness, again, that that Solomon speaks about in the book of Ecclesiastes, right? Vanity of vanities. If, If the only thing that I can try to live for ultimately is the stuff that's under the sun, the stuff of creation, then then all is vanity. Until the God who made us mercifully recreates us and gives us new life, buries us with Christ in baptism, raises us in Him to newness of life and opens up our blind eyes to the light of His glory and His grace and gives us hope gives us a confident certainty in Him, in His infinite glory, in His eternal promises, which are all yes in Christ Jesus. So again, think of a place like Colossians 1 verse 27, where Paul says, God has chosen to make known how great among us are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's no hope apart from Him. And the sad thing is we know it. Every human knows it. But is still in in an insane kind of attempt, groping and grasping for hope in the dark apart from Him. But now that we've been given this, this great hope, this eternal hope, this sure, confident certainty that everything that our souls were designed to long for and hope for is true and real and found in Christ alone, now that we have all of that, the whole purpose of our lives in this world takes on entirely new meaning, doesn't it? We're no longer creation worshipers. We're no longer vainly striving to anchor eternal hope to to temporary things of this world. Now we're worshipers of the Maker, of the Creator Himself. 
Now our hope is anchored to eternity. Now we've been raised with Christ. And so Colossians 3.1 says, Now that we have been, we seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, because, he says, the things that are seen are transient. They don't last. But the things that are unseen are eternal. They're permanent. And that's what our souls were made to long for. Right? That's 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. Now we walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. And what's faith? According to the clear statement of Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the confident assurance of things hoped for. It is the sure conviction of things that are not seen, and it is more certain than sight. If you can see it in this world with your natural physical eyes, you don't need faith to hope in it. But nothing that you can see in this world can ever give you hope in the kind of lasting, eternal way that all human beings are designed to long for by the God who made us and and set eternity in our hearts. And in fact, of course, the horrible reality is that all humans who sinfully suppress God's truth are spiritually blind in unbelief and so they worship the creation instead of the Creator. And, and in sin, they only have this horrible reality in store awaiting for them in eternity of, of everlasting condemnation. And that's such a horribly, terribly, eternally horrifying reality that, that none of the treasures in this world that people spend all their lives trying to put their hope in are, are worth it. Not even close, right? For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his eternal soul, Jesus asks. And so when Jesus mercifully redeems us and gives us the eternal hope of glory in Him, our lives take on a whole new meaning. And a huge part of that whole new meaning is what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, where he says that we have to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone in this world who asks us for a reason for this hope that is within us. Not just continuing to live down here in this world, assured that one day we'll have the hope of of heaven and the new earth as if the things of this world are still the things that matter the most to us. See, we got to live differently. We We can't be living down here in this world waiting to be taken to the eternal hope of glory and and ignoring the fact that there are people all around us who don't have that eternal hope and they are destined for everlasting condemnation. We can't be living down here as, as recipients of this great hope as if those other people don't matter. I mean, does it matter to us? who have been delivered from the eternal wrath of God that is to come and been given faith by God and this confident assurance in the unseen eternal hope of glory, does it matter that all around us people are perishing? People are are without hope in this world. They're apart from God and without hope. So as we come here to Acts, and and the point is, this is all that matters to Paul. But as we come here to Acts 25 and 26, listen carefully first to this exhortation that Peter gives in 1 Peter chapter 3. We just read part of it, but listen to the whole thing, verses 15 and 16. As people who have been given eternal hope in Jesus Christ, Peter says to us, in your hearts now, honor Christ the Lord as holy, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for this hope that is in you. But do it with gentleness and respect towards the unbeliever. Having a good conscience so that when you're slandered by them for, for defending this hope to them, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Not by you, but by God to whom they will have to answer. 
And that is exactly what we see the Apostle Paul doing in Acts 25 and 26, isn't it? He's filled with hope in God's promise himself. And so he's giving a a confident defense of that hope to Agrippa and to Festus and everybody else that came to hear it. And he's doing it with gentleness and respect, even when he's slandered and ridiculed and reviled for it because of all the things that he could be and is concerned about in his life in this world. Nothing matters more than testifying to this hope with the hope that maybe the Lord will grant them repentance and faith. Nothing matters more to Paul, who's been in chains for two years, than pointing people to Jesus as the only one who gives this real, certain, sure, everlasting hope. Please put your hope in Him, Paul is saying. So today what I want to do is take in this whole passage which is the second half of chapter 25 and all of chapter 26. I want to take it all in in one big gulp as we see Paul, who's now before King Herod Agrippa II, and he's giving a defense of this hope that is within him. And I want us to to glean from this all kinds of good stuff in terms of how we can be prepared to do the same thing to give a reason for the hope that is within us, with gentleness and with respect, with a good conscience, even if we get reviled for it, even if we get slandered for it, because nothing matters more in this world than pointing people to Jesus, because without Him, they have no hope. And and, and an eternity of condemnation and divine wrath is all that awaits them apart from Christ. So, Remember where we left off last time. Paul's in Caesarea. He's been there now for more than two years since Lysias brought him from Jerusalem and turned him over to Felix. Felix was deposed as the governor of Judea. He was succeeded by Festus, who is now responsible for Paul's case. The wicked Jewish leaders back in Jerusalem had once again plotted to murder Paul, but God prevented that providentially once again. And so those leaders ended up coming with Festus down to Caesarea to try to make a case before Paul. But, but Festus was unpersuaded that Paul had committed any civil crime against Rome, against the empire, that was worthy of imprisonment, let alone death. So he said to Paul, I got nothing on you. Do you want me to just hand you over to the Jews? Because their gripe is with you, and and they say that you've broken their laws or violated their teachings somehow. And Paul, of course, said, no thanks, I don't really want to go back to Jerusalem with them. Paul appealed to Caesar, the emperor in Rome, and so Festus said, to Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. And that brings us to verse 13 of chapter 25, where Luke tells us that when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. So this king, Agrippa, is Herod Agrippa II, who's the current at this time king of the Herodian kingdom and dynasty. The Herodians had conquered the Hasmonean kingdom back in the year 37 BC. The first of their kings was Herod the Great. And many of these Herodian kings figure prominently into New Testament history as we read through the Gospels and and Acts and the Epistles, starting with Herod the Great, who was the Herodian king that ruled over that dynasty and that kingdom at the time of Jesus' birth. Remember? Herod the Great is the one that the wise men came to following the star to Bethlehem. Herod the Great is the one who ordered the murder of the children in Bethlehem to try to destroy Jesus in his childhood. This Herod now, Herod Agrippa II in Acts 25 and 26, is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. And he's the son of Agrippa I, who was the one who killed James and arrested Peter and was, you remember back from Acts chapter 12, was, was eaten by worms, remember, after he refused to give God glory. 
Then there was Herod Antipas, who was Agrippa II here, this king, Agrippa II's great uncle. And Herod Antipas is the ruler that killed John the Baptist, and that tried to kill Jesus, and that presided over one of Jesus' trials in Luke chapter 23, after he'd been arrested. So these, these kings are all over biblical history, right? The Herodian kingdom had become this kind of vassal state under the Roman Empire. The Romans recognized the Herodians as a sovereign kingdom, but they also expected them to be loyal to Rome and not cause trouble or try to overthrow Rome at the same time. So now the Herodian king, Agrippa II, has come with his, with his consort, Bernice, He's come to the Roman city of Caesarea to meet and to give greetings to the new Roman governor, Portius Festus. Now, Agrippa, King Agrippa, was was known and was notorious for having a very, very scandalous private life in all kinds of ways. He was an utterly and thoroughly and grotesquely immoral person, even by Roman standards, right? Right? The Romans blushed at this guy's immorality. And that's evidenced by the fact right here in Acts 25 and 26 that he shows up in Caesarea with his consort, Bernice. A consort is a romantic partner, at least, and oftentimes a spouse. He shows up with his consort, Bernice, who is his biological sister. Yep. She's his sister. And their other sister, Agrippa and Bernice's other sister, is Drusilla, the wife of Felix from back in Acts chapter 24. So, so see, here's the thing. Here comes this worldly, godless, grossly immoral, earthly king to visit Festus in Caesarea and make you know, political shoulder rubbing happening there in Caesarea. And, and after he'd been there for some days, Festus lets Agrippa in on this odd case of this prisoner, Paul, who Festus's predecessor, Felix, had left in his custody there. He tells the whole story in verses 14 through 21. And then in verse 22, Agrippa says to Festus, I'd like to hear from Paul myself. So the next day, verse 23, Luke says, and through verse 25... Agrippa and Bernice come in with great pomp. And the Greek word for pomp is the word fantasia. It means a bunch of big, gaudy, ostentatious fanfare. If they had fireworks, they would have been going off probably. Decked out in all their royal garb, trumpets are blowing, robes, crowns, scepters, the whole shebang. They come into this big auditorium, escorted by military tribunes along with all the prominent men of the city. Agrippa wants everybody to know what a big deal he is. And in the midst of this big display of earthly vanity and pride and self-importance and vain glory, Paul is dragged in. In contrast, right, in your mind, Paul must have looked pretty shabby. He's been locked up for two years. He's, He's literally in chains now. And so we've got this wonderful picture of what it looks like to very humbly proclaim the glories of Christ to those people in this world who are proudly and arrogantly reveling in the glories of this world and in their own glory. How do you do that? Here. Here Paul models it for us. So Festus says to Agrippa that he's going to send Paul to Caesar in Rome, but that it would be unreasonable to send him there without any, any charges on the record against him of any crimes that he's guilty of before the empire. So, chapter 26 now, since there's no one there to accuse Paul anymore, Agrippa just says, you have permission to speak for yourself. And so Paul begins to speak. And once again... Notice here, as we we work through this narrative, Paul's primary focus and goal is not so much to defend himself and argue for his own personal freedom. It's to use that as a launching pad 
to give a defense of the hope that is within him, to point to Christ, to preach the gospel of the eternal freedom from sin and death and condemnation that comes only through faith in Christ. And since that's the most important thing that that we can do in this world too, and that we need to be doing during our lives in this world, and since that, that is a hard thing to know how to do and how to defend our faith, how to give a reason for this hope that is within us, and since it can be hard to do that when people in this world don't want to hear it and when they make fun of us and mock us and ridicule us for, for believing in the Word of God at all, for believing in this Gospel, since it's tough, right? And those who believe it and proclaim it need help. And since all that's true, there's a lot of helpful truth here in this narrative for us to glean. Notice first of all, notice first of all Paul's attitude toward this godless, arrogant, worldly, grotesquely immoral king. It'd be awfully tempting, wouldn't it? For Paul, for any of us, to think that such a disgustingly sinful man wouldn't be worth our time or our breath. I want nothing to do with you. You're going to get what you deserve. Or it would be tempting to think that if we had to answer to him, we'd be tempted to do it with a a contemptuous, disrespectful tone or attitude like Christians can often have when they're talking about earthly rulers that govern and preside over us in this world or in this country. Got to be careful. Paul follows this exhortation that Peter would later give, doesn't he? Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. I just, I wonder how many Christians today in our country if they were given an opportunity to preach the gospel to the current president and call him to repent and call him to believe on Jesus, I wonder if they'd even be able to do it with gentleness and respect. Or if they would ever even be be taken seriously by the president in the first place because of all of the harsh disrespectful things that they posted publicly all over Twitter and Facebook. Maybe you're not on Twitter and Facebook, but I am, and and I see Christians saying the most disrespectful, horrible things. Not about the policies, but about the person. So again, we're not talking about critiquing the unbiblical, ungodly positions and policies. We're talking about all of the personal ad hominem defamatory comments. And to me, it seems that a lot of Christians today are compromising and sacrificing their ability to proclaim the gospel to sinners because of the disrespectful and contemptuous way that they publicly talk about sinners. Paul, on the other hand, here's how he sounds before this Nasty, disgusting king. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially since you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Humble, gentle, respectful, submissive, not rolling his eyes in disgust, not sneering in personal condemnation, just all the kinds of things that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. No reason. See, Paul gives, gives no reason in his posture or tone or attitude that would, that would short-circuit his ability to proclaim the gospel to this sinful king from the get-go by personally insulting him or disrespecting him. So, just number one, as, as, we're, as we're trying to be salt and light in this world and ambassadors of Christ in this world, as people who have received His grace in this world, ought we not to be gracious about the way that we address people who need His grace in this world? We've got to think carefully, don't we? As people who have been saved from our own sin, 
by the unmerited love and grace of God, we've got to be careful about how we conduct ourselves and speak about other people, especially publicly, who need that same redeeming grace every bit as much as we did. We did not need it less than them. And we've got to be careful, especially in the days of the internet and social media, because once you say it on there, you cannot unsay it. You cannot unring the Twitter bell. You might think you deleted your post, but guess what? Somewhere out there, it's archived. So, Paul's ability to speak with gentleness and respect to this godless, worldly king in telling him, in telling Agrippa the reason for the hope that's in Paul, that comes from Paul's abiding realization that he, that Paul was no less godless was no less worldly and immoral and sinful, and he was no more worthy, no more deserving of God's favor or of God's grace than Agrippa was. So you see where he goes now in verse 4? Look at verse 4. He's saying on the one hand that he's done nothing in violation of Jewish tradition or custom or law. He's He's not guilty of anything against the Jews. But again, defending himself is just a a segue into defending this hope that is within him. And in verses 4 and 5, he begins to to do that by, by pointing to the sin that was in him before he had this hope. He says he grew up as a faithful Jewish man, and he was so strictly allegiant to the Jewish way that he became a Pharisee. And that the only reason that he's on trial and accused now by the Jews, verses 6 and 7, is because he's come to realize the fulfillment of the same hope that all Jewish people hope for. As, as, as people who believe in the, in the God-given revelation of the Old Testament Scriptures. They all hope for the same hope that he's found now. They all hope to attain that hope as they earnestly worship God. Paul now has has come to realize the same hope that God promised to all of Abraham's descendants. For this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. He's trying to say, look at the irony. I'm being accused for the same hope that they hope for. And then, bang, just like that, he shifts all of the focus away from defending himself and onto a defense of the gospel. Verse 8, what is this hope? that God promised to His people. Where does it come from? What do you say to a a depraved pagan king about this hope? Well, Well, look what Paul does. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now, we've seen Paul do this before, back in chapter 23, and make the resurrection central to his defense of the Gospel. You remember that? The resurrection was, was the only thing that the Sadducees had a theological disagreement with Paul about because the Sadducees didn't believe that it was possible for a dead person to be raised. But they also had that same disagreement with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. And they understood that the whole everlasting hope that God promises all over the Old Testament Scriptures is all bound up in the resurrection of the dead. So see what Paul's doing? He's defending the hope. The Pharisees understood that the hope that God promises means that that death doesn't win in the end. That's, That's what God's Word proclaims. Death is the curse of sin, and God will triumph over death itself. That's the hope. God will will vanquish death with redemption and resurrection and everlasting life. And Paul is simply saying that in Jesus who was raised from the dead by God, that's all, that's all become real now. The redemption has come because Jesus is the first fruit of a whole harvest of resurrection and everlasting life that is to be brought in. Well, but the Sadducees don't want to believe in resurrection at all. The Pharisees don't want to believe that Jesus was raised. And the pagans like Agrippa and all of the other super scientifically minded people in our day don't want to believe that the resurrection from the dead is even possible. They just, they just dismiss in their darkened unbelief the very core of everlasting hope, see? And so what do you do when they do that and make scientific arguments and make you look like a philosophical idiot? 
Well, Paul just wants to know why. Why would you just dismiss this? Why does this seem so incredible to you to believe that God, who made everything, can actually raise somebody from the dead? Why is that incredible to you? Is it not more incredible to believe that everything exists came from nothing with, without anything causing it? Why is it so incredible to believe that the eternal almighty creator of all things, the one who made life in the first place, can raise a dead person back to life? And implicit in this question that Paul is asking in verse 8, of course, is the reality that, that people don't want to believe in the possibility of God raising the dead because people don't want to believe in the reality of God Himself. Because in their sin, they don't want to be accountable to an eternal, almighty, all-knowing, holy God. And so in the foolishness of their hearts, they deny Him. And that's the precondition of denying the resurrection. And so here, see, Paul, having been respectful to King Agrippa, is already now in full-bore gospel mode. He's, he's ready to proclaim the good news about the everlasting hope that God promises by declaring the horribly bad news that in human sin and unrighteousness, people suppress the truth of God and deny Him in the foolishness of their darkened hearts. And... In, in doing that now and saying you're, you're all sinners, lest Paul come off with some kind of air of superiority, he humbly acknowledges his own sin and desperate need of divine redeeming grace and mercy from God through faith in Jesus. I'm no better than any of you. I was the worst of them all. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. See, he's, he's painting with the colors of defending himself against the Jews, but he's, he's starting now to blend those colors into an explicit defense of the gospel, including a confession of his own sin against Jesus and Jesus' great grace towards him. I oppose the name of Jesus. I did it in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. So the second thing is, it's so crucial in being an effective witness and ambassador of Jesus that we be humble in proclaiming His gospel. That we don't come off as superior. That our proclamation of the gospel of grace be given graciously. That our call to sinners to repent and come to Jesus is coming from hearts that humbly recognize that it is only by His grace that we've been saved. And made to be able to repent of our own sin and call out to Him for salvation. So again, now all the colors of Paul's defense are blending from a defense of himself against false accusations by the Jews into this brilliant portrait of Jesus. See? These Jews who are persecuting me, I was every bit as zealous and committed as they are and more because as a Jew, as a Pharisee, I persecuted Christians too. And then it all gives way, doesn't it? To exalting Christ in verse 12 as he recounts the story of how the risen Jesus Christ appeared to him in blinding glory and said to him, Paul, why are you persecuting not Christians? Why are you persecuting me? On that Damascus road all the way back in Acts chapter 9. And how Jesus called him to go to the Gentiles. Verse 18, to open their sin-blinded eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light like He graciously enabled me to and from the power of Satan to God, and that they might receive forgiveness of sins like I'd received, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, in Jesus. That's what, that's what Jesus sent Paul for. This is the purpose, to bring salvation and sanctification to the Gentiles through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Gentiles just like this ungodly, immoral Gentile king, Agrippa. So here Paul is, falsely accused, unjustly imprisoned for more than two years, and he is consumed, not with an interest in his own freedom or rights or or privileges or earthly ambitions. He's consumed with a need to give a reason for this great eternal hope that is in him. This eternal hope promised by God Himself that no riches, no treasures in this world can hold a candle to a hope of a glory so infinitely brilliant that none of the sufferings even of this present time can come close to being worthy of comparison to it. And Paul is so consumed by this hope and this promise and this glory of Christ that he's got zero inclination to exalt himself in any way, to make himself sound superior, to put himself as a righteous man, as a godly man up above King Agrippa. All he can do is exalt Jesus by testifying to Jesus' death and resurrection and the forgiveness of sins and the, the sanctification and purification of a life like his that only comes not by his own efforts but through faith in Christ. In verse 19 he says that his allegiance and everything he's done has been to God in heaven. No one in this world can accuse Paul because he's been obedient to God. I haven't done anything objectively wrong because I'm just doing what Jesus told me to do from heaven. And what Jesus Christ, who is all of the fullness of deity in bodily form, commanded him to do is to go to people everywhere and call them to repent of their sins and, and turn to God in faith. And perform deeds in keeping with repentance. That's what he says in verse 20. See, he's preaching the whole gospel to him now. To Festus, to Agrippa, to Agrippa's sister Bernice, to everyone who is there and and who is witnessing this whole thing. They're all listening in in this amphitheater in Caesarea as Paul says that the God of the universe commissioned him to call all people everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to God and to bear fruit now of holiness in their lives instead of living for the passions of their own flesh. To be forgiven through faith. To be sanctified and washed and cleansed through faith in Jesus. That's the gospel. It's repentance and faith, right? Unto forgiveness and sanctification, right? Through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, because He is the only way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. And everyone who calls on His name for salvation from the wrath of God will be saved. All of that, Paul says is in marvelous fulfillment of everything that God Himself revealed and spoke through Moses. And through all of the prophets in the Old Testament Scriptures, that the Christ, the anointed one of God, would come for His people and would suffer and die for His people and then would be the first one to rise from the dead so as to bring a global harvest of everlasting life, both among Paul's people, the Jews, and among the Gentiles, like Agrippa and Festus. I mean, Paul just goes for it here, doesn't he? He's shown respect, he's shown gentleness, he's demonstrated personal humility as a, as a sinner saved by grace alone himself, but he's, he's not pulling any punches about the gospel, is he? Sinners need the salvation that only comes from God and only comes through faith in Christ. They need to repent of the very kinds of sins that Agrippa and Bernice are, are flaunting all over the empire here. They need to turn to God and be saved from His wrath. And they need to be forgiven and sanctified or else an eternity of of misery and condemnation lies ahead for them in hell. So is that how graciously and humbly but, but, but urgently bold we are? We who have been so graciously delivered from this same wrath of God and and lavished with this saving, sanctifying grace of Jesus. We who were once lost, we who have been found, we who were blind, but now we see, do these characteristics mark our lives? 
humility, respect, gentleness, and urgency. Because without Christ, we would have been on our way to hell too. Who are we to withhold this message? Now look at how Festus, verse 24 here, Festus sitting by, taking all this in, look how Festus responds. You can picture him sitting there just kind of going, oh, Paul, what are you talking about, man? Shaking his head, throwing his hands up in exasperation. Verse 24 says, he shouts loudly, Paul, you're out of your mind. You're out of, you're standing in front of a king and a Roman governor Basically telling us that we're sinners deserving of the wrath of God. Basically telling us that we have to believe that a, a dead Nazarene was raised from the dead. What's, you're crazy. All of this sounds like lunacy to Festus. It seems ludicrous to his sin-blinded, unbelieving mind. Paul, I mean, look, we're, we're saying we've got nothing to hold you on and you can go free if you want to and this is what you want to do. This is what you've suffered all of this persecution for. This ridiculous message, seriously? This is what you've devoted your entire life to, even if it kills you, seriously? This is what you want to be sent to Rome for. This is what matters so much to Paul that he'd rather stay in prison than go peaceably about his life on this earth. This Jesus... This gospel holds out more hope to Paul than literally anything else in this world. And Festus says, you've gone mad. You're insane. All of your great learning and reading, he recognizes that Paul's no dummy. He's a very learned and educated man, but he says all of this learning of the, the scriptures that you've done is driving you out of your mind, Paul. That's how they'll treat you sometimes. When you preach the gospel, if you preach it faithfully, if you resist the temptation to say, well, I don't want him to think I'm completely nuts, so how can I phrase it in a way that seems reasonable to them? Mm -mm, Don't do that. It's unreasonable to them because they don't want to believe in this truth. They're going to call you crazy sometimes. It's okay, right? Look at Paul's simple reply, verse 25. I'm not crazy. I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. You can just tell people that. There's nothing irrational about this gospel. There's nothing unreasonable about this at all. It's the most rational, reasonable thing in existence. And not believing it means not believing in what's actually real. Isn't this refreshing and encouraging? I mean, the world literally thinks we're nuts believing what we believe. The world literally thinks we're all crazy for coming and doing this for two hours on a Sunday morning. What are you doing? You could be at the beach. You could be sleeping in. You could be out to lunch. What are you doing coming to church every week? They think we're crazy, but that doesn't make any of it untrue, right? People think that it's ridiculous to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. That doesn't make it irrational to believe that the God who made the whole universe and who is the author of life is able to conquer death. In reality, it's the fool who says in his heart there is no God and that everything that God's revealed in his word is is ludicrous. It's the fool who says that. So Paul, see, Paul's not intimidated by Festus's incredulity and unbelief and mocking rejection of the truth. Paul's not intimidated by Festus's conclusion that Paul is, has just become a raving lunatic. You don't need to be intimidated by the world's scoffing, by the world's scorn, by the world's ridicule. Just stand faithfully firm on what the God of creation says is true because I'm pretty sure He knows more about it than the people out there. He's a more reliable source than they are, right? So Festus tells Paul that he's lost his mind. Paul in response says, I'm not out of my mind. I'm speaking the most true and rational words that exist. And then he says this, verse 26, talking about Agrippa, he says, the king knows about these things. And to him, I speak 
boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice because none of this has been done in a corner. It's not like like the death of Jesus was some big secret. It's not like it was some big secret that they couldn't find his body anywhere and that the tomb was empty. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Agrippa apparently was well familiar with the Jewish scriptures and all that they teach and all that they prophesy of the Messiah, the suffering servant who would die but wouldn't be abandoned to death and who would be raised in order to save his people from death. Agrippa knows what the Old Testament clearly speaks of and prophesies of and he knows what happened in Jerusalem when Jesus died because it was his uncle who presided over Jesus' trial and then sent Jesus back to Pontius Pilate who had him crucified. Agrippa knows all about Jesus. Agrippa knows what happened on the third day after they buried him in that tomb. Agrippa knows how precisely Jesus fulfilled all that the scriptures spoke of, but he's rejecting it because in his heart he's rejecting Christ. Because he loves his sin. And he would rather indulge in all of the fleeting things of this world that embrace everlasting hope in Christ alone. And so Agrippa says to Paul, you're not going to persuade me to be a Christian in just this little bit of time. He knows Paul, that's what Paul's, he's, he's pleading with Agrippa to, to repent and believe in Jesus. He goes, you're not, going to, you're not going to persuade me to give up everything that I love luxuriating in my life here on earth this quickly. And Paul's only response is, again, the call of the gospel. Whether it takes a short time or a long time, I would to God that not only you, but everyone who hears me on this day might become such as I am. He means saved by grace, except for these chains, right? I would to God that all who hear this gospel would repent and would turn to God and be saved and forgiven and sanctified by God's grace like I was. I would that you had everything that I have except these chains. I wouldn't wish that on any of you. But I do wish more than anything that everyone who hears me preaching this gospel would repent, would turn, would be delivered from the everlasting wrath that is to come. And would embrace this eternal hope of the glory of the Christ that nothing in this world is worth being compared to. Paul just proclaims the gospel because Paul knows he can't change anybody's hearts or minds, but the gospel can. Can you do that? You can't change their hearts. You can't change their minds. You can't make sure they won't ridicule or mock you. But you can just give them the word of God. The end of the matter here in Acts 26 is this. The king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. He's a nut job. He's crazy. He's, a, he's an idiot, but he's not broken any laws. And Agrippa says to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But for Paul, hope was not in earthly freedom, and yours must not be either. It was in the promise of God that cannot fail. Paul's hope was in the promise of God. And having been saved by God's grace through faith, he felt this abiding urgency to call others to turn and repent and believe too. And he felt this abiding confidence that the power of God and the gospel was capable of changing the most stubborn of minds. Do you know people who you go, they'll never believe. They'll never repent. So I bet I'm not even going to bother. Because you think they're so sinful that the grace of Christ cannot be sufficient for them. What do you think about your sin? It's a miracle that I believed. Nothing short of a miracle. There's a bunch of people I went to high school with and we did a bunch of wicked, sinful things together. And I can't take any credit for the fact that God saved me and not some of them. 
There was nothing better about me, nothing less sinful about me, nothing more deserving about me. God just opened blind eyes. God just came to my tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. Paul knows the power of God is capable of changing the most stubborn of minds and softening the hardest of hearts and opening the blindest of eyes and saving the most lost of sinners. And you know why he knows that? Because God saved Paul. Jesus could have showed up on the road to Damascus that day in all of his blazing heavenly resurrected glory and said, enough, Paul, bam, and squished him like a bug. But he saved Paul. He redeemed Paul. And Paul knows Agrippa's not past the grasp of God's grace either. When you're testifying to the gospel like Paul is here, just know you don't have to be the sovereign one. You don't have to be the omnipotent one. You don't have to be the one who does miracles on people's hearts and changes their minds. You just have to say, here's the truth according to God who made you. Their minds won't accept it because in their hearts they're rejecting Him and you can't change their hearts, right? So there's no sense in trying to play the game by their rules and and prove it according to their standards of proof and justify it in a way that in their unbelief they'll find reasonable. That's, That's not how you do it. You can't change their minds because their hearts need to be changed. Minds follow after hearts. Only God Himself can change hearts like He did to Paul on the Damascus Road. Paul knows he would have rejected it all too. He'd keep rejecting it all too. He did reject it all. He rejected it all violently until the sovereign power of the risen Jesus raised him to newness of life. So, when the world laughs and mocks, don't be ashamed of the gospel just because they tell you you're out of your mind for for believing it and staking all your hope to it and spending your whole life in pursuit of it. Because the gospel is the very power of God unto salvation for Jews and for Gentiles to all who believe. It is God's power to open blind eyes, to raise dead souls, to conquer unbelief, to crucify people with Jesus and raise them up to newness of life. To put skin on the dry bones and make them stand up and march. There's no power that you have in you. There's no power of rational persuasion that you have. You can't out-philosophize them and get them to accept it. The Gospel can. God can. The Holy Spirit can and does. Just tell them. In all humility, in all respect, with all gentleness, and with great urgency and faithfulness to tell them the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Just tell them. And tell them that you were a sinner saved by this same grace too. That there's nothing more worthy of God's favor in you. That you deserved God's wrath as much as any sinner ever did. Tell them. You rejected the truth. You rejected Christ until God graciously and powerfully opened your eyes to see and believe and to anchor your whole hope to the promise of God that is yes in Jesus Christ alone. Can you do that? Let's pray together today and then let's sing to Jesus as we come to the table to be fed and nourished with the grace that we need. Pray with me. Our God and our Father, would You give us humility? Would You give us gracious spirits? And would You fill us with an abiding sense of love? For the lost, because we were lost and were loved by You. And Father, would You fill us with an urgency to go and to tell all of them, even if they think we're nuts and even if we think that they're so staunchly committed to their unbelief that there's no way they can be saved, would we have the confidence in You and in the power of the Gospel to do what You did in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. And Father, would You help us to do that in a way that glorifies You and that honors You. Father, help us to be lights in the darkness of this world. Help us to be the city on the hill so that people wandering in that darkness would see the source of hope in Jesus Christ. And Father, help us to be ready 
by being confident in the content of Your Word to be ready to give a reason for this hope that is within us. The reason is simply Jesus. And so, Father, it is to Him that we pray. It is to Him that we sing praises. It is to Him that we devote our lives. And it is for Him that we live. Father, give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. You can turn to page 11.